0: Today on Pence Exchange, Rise and Fall of Imperial China. to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Yuha Wang. He's a professor of government at Harvard University. He received his bachelor's degree from Peking University and his PhD in political science from the University of Michigan. He's the author of Tying the Autocrat's Hands, The Rise of the Rule of Law in China, and of the book that will be discussed today, The Rise and Fall of Imperial China, recently published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Yuhua.
1: Thank you so much, Fernando. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Up until the 18th century, China was the world's hegemon. How did it get there in the first place? And why did the empire collapse abruptly in the 20th century? Today, Yuhua Wang will talk to us about his most recent book, where he argues the Chinese state experienced a gradual decline in state capacity caused by a sovereign's dilemma, where cohesive elites, strengthen the state, but also weaken the position of the emperor. Yuhua, you introduced the book by pointing out that not all of the world follows Europe's state development patterns. So let's start with that. What makes China's state development different and perhaps unique?
1: Yeah, I think compared with Europe, I can think of uh, one key difference. Uh, so this key difference is uh, the the type of political institutions we are seeing in these two parts of Eurasia. I think one watershed event that changed European history was the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe became fragmented. Um, also with a brief history under unification under the Carolingian Empire, but pr- pretty much Europe stayed fragmented for you know decades, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. And then I think uh, one of the consequences of being politically fragmented is that uh uh, there were a large number of small kingdoms in Europe uh, since, for example, the 10th century, 11th century. And then they started to compete with each other. And then the competition and also the war among the smaller kingdoms incentivized the European kings and queens uh, to bargain with the local elites whose revenue the kings and queens wanted. And then, so therefore, the competition in Europe and also the wars in Europe contributed to the rise of representative institutions in Europe. For example, parliament emerged in most of the Western European countries in 12th century, 13th century. And then um, the representative institutions uh, were able to lead to two outcomes that I think are very desirable in Europe. One, uh, On the one hand, um, the representative institutions were able to check the power of the European rulers. Therefore, to make it credible for example, for the European rulers to tax the local elites. And therefore, we see the rise of taxation in Europe over time. Right, So state capacity gradually increased over time because the representative institutions were able to check the power of the rulers. Um, And second of all, the the representative institutions also um, enabled the elites in Europe to bargain with the kings and queens rather than to kill them. So therefore, uh, the European rulers were able to stay in power as long as possible because the local elites didn't have to kill the kings and queens to get what we wanted, and then therefore, you know, gradually, you know, uh, after hundreds of years, we see two outcomes in Europe. Uh, one is the European rulers were able to stay in power as long as possible. Uh, you know, uh, there was some studies that show that, for example, in the 16th century, 17th century, on average, European kings and queens were able to stay in power for about 20 years, and that. That's a very long time. Also, gradually, European countries were able to collect a lot of tax revenues. So state capacity also gradually increased. Um, That's not the case in China. So as I show in the Chinese case in the book, because China was able to stay unified for most part of its history, uh, collecting revenue and also staying power uh, for the ruler were often two contradictory goals for the Chinese emperors. That is, in the Chinese past, the Chinese emperors were either uh, able to collect revenue or to stay in power as long as they wanted, but they couldn't do both at the same time.
0: The book's argument is theoretically supported by a rendition of three ideal archetypes by which the ruler, the elites, and society interact to
1: specific networks of what you call social terrain. Could you briefly summarize what those are? Right, exactly. So the the reason why the Chinese emperors were not able to achieve two goals at the same time, you know, to uh, maximize the personal power of the emperors, but also to increase their capacity at the same time is because China didn't have those representative institutions. And then, therefore, to achieve either one of those goals, what the Chinese emperors need to do is to rely on the elites and then to, and then, Without the representative institutions, I think the social structure of the elites became more important. The argument in the book is the following. That is, I argue that um, there are three ideal types of elite social structure that can condition the two variables I'm looking at. One is how um, how many years the Chinese emperors were able to stay in power. And also secondly, uh, the state capacity of the Chinese imperial state. And then the argument is that um, uh, there are three ideal types of elite social structures, the first one is what I call a star network. The second one is what I call a bow tie network. The third one is what I call a ring network. And then in the star network, um, you have central elites—you know, people who work in the central government who are connected with each other through social ties. So in the book, I focus on intermarriages. So the um, the star network. For example, the central elites who work in the central government are connected with each other through intermarriages. But also at the same time, it's a star network also because the center also through social networks connected local social groups in different geographic locations in China. So, um, for example, you know, the uh, politicians who work in the central government through intermarriages were able to connect local social groups in different corners of the empire. So that looks like a star network. And then the bowtie network uh, is that uh, the central elites are not connected through social ties. So, you know, the sons and daughters of the central politicians are not intermarried with each other. So the, there's no ties between the central elites. But at the same time, each of the central elites is connected with the local social groups uh, concentrated in one geographic location. So, for example, you know, maybe one of the central elites is connected with local social groups in the West only. And then one central politician is connected with local social groups in the East only. So the, and, and, and then it shows like a bowtie network. In the ring network, that's the extreme. Uh, that is um, the central elites are not connected with each other, but also the central elites are not connected with any of the local social groups. So it looks like a ring. And then they argue that uh, uh, China's Imperial history can be divided into three periods where, for example, from the um, first dynasty, the Qin dynasty, to the Tang dynasty, which collapsed in the ninth century. Uh, in the first 1,000 years of the imperial China, I argue that uh, the elite social structure can be best characterized as a star network. And then therefore, we should expect to see um, very strong state capacity, because in the, stain, um, in the star network, the elites are connected with each other they can make a credible commitment to each other to build a strong state but also since their family interests are scattered in every corner of the empire they also have an interest in paying taxes to the central state to rely on the central state to protect their family interests which are scattered everywhere in the country Uh, and then there was a transition in the 10th century and that's how china transitioned to a bowtie network so from the song dynasty which started in the 10th century, and then uh, to the mid Qing dynasty, to the um, mid 19th century. So in those hundreds of years, I argue that the Chinese elites can be best characterized as a bow tie network where uh, all the central elites uh, uh, are not connected with each other, but also they are uh, locally concentrated. Their social relations are locally concentrated. For example, all their marriages are located in one location. And then in that case, uh, I argue that um, it's great news for the Chinese rulers because uh, now the central elites are not connected. They are disconnected. Therefore, the the Chinese emperors could uh, divide and conquer the central elites and play factions against each other and then uh, use that opportunity. The Chinese emperors could consolidate their own personal monarchical power. But at the same time, the bowtie network was bad news for the Chinese state because all the central elites are locally concentrated, they only care about their own families, their own localities. When they even they work in the central government, their attention was to divert central resources to their own localities. They are not interested in building a strong central state. So, uh, in those hundreds of years from the Song Dynasty to the Ming uh, to the mid Qing Dynasty, the Chinese state gradually declined. And then the last part of Chinese history, uh, from the Ming Qing Dynasty to the late Qing dynasty from the mid 19th century to the early 20th century was best characterized as a ring network where the central elites were autonomous from the local social groups they're no longer connected with local social groups and the local society became independent of the central state and then gradually they became independent and then at the end of the imperial China they started to have for example local families started to have local militia private militia and they started to rebel against the imperial state. And then that's the reason for the fall of the imperial China.
0: Great. So you have summarized the book for us. Yeah. But the core argument relies basically in this relationship between the ruler and the elite in what you call the sovereign's dilemma, which basically suggests that the state power hinges on a delicate balance between the elites and the ruler. So could you talk to us more in detail about what does the sovereign's
1: dilemma tell? Yes, yeah, right. So the... Overall, argument I put forward in the book is the so called sovereign dilemma, sovereign's dilemma. And then the idea of the sovereign's dilemma is that I argue Chinese emperors faced the trade off that uh, the Chinese rulers were trying to achieve two goals, right? Uh, the first goal is to maximize their own personal power. They want to stay in power as long as possible, they want to have as much power as possible over the elites. The second goal is to have a strong state, right? All, all rulers want to have a strong state. Therefore, they can defend against foreign enemies. They can also put down domestic rebellions. But the sovereign's dilemma is that the Chinese emperors were not able to achieve both goals at the same time because the social structure that is required for strengthening the state is also the social structure that will threaten the emperor's power, right? Right. so, for example, when uh, the Chinese emperors were facing a star network where the central elites were connected with each other, they were also you know, um, connected with lo- local social groups in different places in China, um, that star network was threatening the power of the Chinese emperors because the elites were able to take collective action against the Chinese rulers when they wanted to do. Uh, but that star network was uh, uh, conducive to building a strong state because of the collective action among the central elites, right? And then, uh, so when you have a star network, uh, you have strong state, but when, but then you have a very weak ruler, and then uh, transitioning to a bowtie network, the bowtie network is great news for the uh, the emperors because the emperors were able to divide and conquer and then strengthen their own power. But then the bowtie network is bad news for the state because the central elites do not trust each other; they cannot coordinate in making policies to strengthen the central state. So therefore, uh, no matter whether China was in you know, under a star network or bowtie network or ring network, and the ring network is the worst case where the central elites are not interested in building a strong state, and then the local social groups are independent from the state. So therefore, uh, no matter whether the Chinese state is under a uh, star network or bowtie network or ring network, the Chinese emperors were not able to achieve... Uh, both goals at the same time. And then the difference, I guess, between China and Europe is uh, exactly because China didn't have the representative institutions that Europe had, right? And uh, because of the absence of parliament in imperial China, the Chinese emperors were not able to regulate ruler-elite relations using formal institutions. And then they have to rely on informal institutions, for example, elite social networks, intermarriages, so on and so forth. And then um, in contrast in Europe, because of the rights of parliament uh, in Western European countries, uh, the European rulers were able to manage elite ruler relationship in the formal institutions. Therefore, they were able to achieve both goals gradually at the same time.
0: What I find fascinating about your work is that basically instead of fixating on stagnation, which will explain why some states are weak today, or on how states became strong, you really focus on the decline of state power through time. And your historical narrative goes basically for almost two millennia. But before we go into that, I would like to ask what happened previously. How did China get to have a star network in the very first place? With the Tang Dynasty, as you argue.
1: Yeah, uh, so China became unified very early on. Um, the Qin Dynasty, which is the f- first dynasty of the Imperial China, was formed th- around 2000 years ago um, because of war, actually. There, there's a very f- famous book by Victoria Hui at the University of Notre Dame, which argued that uh, the wars in the Warring States period um, contributed to the formation of a unified central state. In the Qin dynasty. So, so that part of Chinese history was very similar to European history as argued by Charles Tilly. And then after the formation of the centralized state, um, gradually uh, there is a new class of elites that emerged in about 2th century, 3rd century. That's during the Han dynasty because the Han emperors uh, recruited the local educated elites into the bureaucracy. And then uh, that policy encouraged the formation of a new class of elites gradually in the third century, fourth century, that is the local land-owning elites. Because of their economic advantage, they were able to invest in their sons and grandsons' education. So their sons and grandsons were able to enter the government to become bureaucrats. And then those families gradually, they used their political power to reinvest in their local physical capital, for example, uh, land, and then to use that to reinvest in their human capital, which is their sons and grandsons' education. So those families gradually were able to consolidate their local power bases and then keep sending their sons and grandsons to the central government to work. And then those families later on became the aristocratic families that monopolized bureaucratic positions in China for hundreds of years. So there were about 200 aristocratic families that gradually emerged in about fourth century, fifth century, and then they started to control all the bureaucratic positions in the central government, for example, in the Sui dynasty, in the Tang dynasty. And then they formed a star network because uh, the male members of the aristocratic families, they gradually all moved to the capital to work because they all work in the central government. So, although their hometowns are scattered in different places in the country, but the male members, Uh, they all moved to the capital to work. And then gradually, they also formed a very close-knit intermarriage network because the narutocratic families, because they only marry each other, they only uh, marry their sons and daughters with each other. And then they gradually formed this very close-knit central marriage network during the Tang Dynasty, and then they all live in the capital. So that's what makes it look like a... Star network that is in the town government, for example, the 200 families, the male members, they they all congregated in the capital areas. And then the families were all intermarried with each other. Um, And then through the intermarriages, they were also able to connect different aristocratic families that were scattered in different places in the empire. So it looks like a star network.
0: As you previously mentioned, there were certain thresholds in Chinese history that marked the transition between the different uh, networks from Star Network to tide to Ring Network. So let's focus on the first one, on the transition from Star Network to tide, which more or less happened in the 10th century when the decline of the old aristocracy, which you are previously talking, more or less uh, all ended after the massification of civil service examinations and the introduction of other reforms at the beginning of the Song dynasty, that gave rise to what you call a new bureaucratic gentry. The paradox is that it led to this new new equilibrium where the social networks became less dense, a weaker state but a more powerful ruler. Why is this threshold so critical and why did supposedly meritocratic reforms have this effect?
1: Right, the... Aristocratic families were able to control all the bureaucratic positions um, in the Sui Dynasty, in the Tang Dynasty. Uh, that's you know from the seventh century to the ninth century. Uh, in the late 9th century, there were several years in China that um, the temperature became really cold. And then I show um, in the book using data from the last 2,000 years, you know, showing the temperature anomalies in the last 2,000 years in China. And then in the late 9th century, there were several years that China experienced extremely cold years, but also drought in the South. And then that uh, condition became uh, conducive to mass rebellions. And then, so in the late 9th century, in the year of 880, uh, Huang Chao, who was a salt merchant in the Tang Dynasty, led a rebellion against the Tang Dynasty. And then they succeeded in conquering the capitals of the Tang Dynasty. So in the year of 881, the Huang Chao rebels conquered the capitals of Tang Dynasty, which were Chang'an and Luoyang. And then they also occupied the capitals for two years from 882, uh, Sorry, from 881 to 883. So during the two years of occupation, the Huang Chao rebels killed all, almost all of the main members of the 200 aristocratic families. And then that led to the downfall of the Tang dynasty, but also changed Chinese history. Because after the Tang dynasty, uh, the new emperors in the Song dynasty were no longer able to draw bureaucratic talents talents from the aristocratic families. Um, And then they were uh, uh, thinking about a new way to recruit bureaucratic talents. And then they uh, came up with, a solution called the civil service examination system. The civil service examination system also started in the Tang dynasty, but during the Tang times, the exams were not systematically used because the aristocratic families were monopolizing power during the Tang times. It's only in the Song times after the death of the aristocrats, uh, the emperors started to systematically use the civil service examination system to choose bureaucrats. And then what happened after... uh, the local elites need to rely on the exams to enter the bureaucracy was that um, uh, landholding became really, really important starting in the Song Dynasty. That is, uh, all the families, they need to invest in their children's education and then they need to get some income from their landholding. And then the landholding tied them to their own localities. And then they want to build social relations with their neighbors rather than marrying people from faraway provinces. And then, um, so according to the historians, this is called the localist turn of Chinese elites that is starting the Song dynasty, the Chinese elites started to concentrate their social relations in one locality. And then as a result, uh, after their sons and grandsons succeeded in, the civil service examination system, they started to go to the capital to work. But once they arrive at the capital, they realize that they don't know anybody in the capital because other social relations are concentrated in their own hometowns. So therefore, that fragmented the social network of the central elites in the capitals. So I show in the book, for example, using network analysis, uh, when we look at the marriage networks of the central elites in the Song dynasty, they became much, much more fragmented compared with the Tang networks. And then... That's because um, all their social relations are locally concentrated. And then uh, also at the same time, because all the social elites, their social relations are locally concentrated, they're also no longer interested in building a strong central state because all they care about starting in the Song dynasty is their own families and also their own localities. So therefore when they make policies, for example, I, I talk about in the book, one of the reforms in the Song dynasty called the Wang Anxi reform. During the reform, a lot of politicians opposed Wang idea to strengthen the central government in the Song dynasty. They actually uh, wanted to divert all the resources from the central government to their own localities because that's where their economic interests lie. And then um, that's the case for the uh, whole lady imperial China from the Song dynasty actually to the Qing dynasty. That is, the central politicians primarily were interested in gaining local autonomy and then uh, benefiting their own localities rather than strengthening the central government. And then, um, so that has two consequences. One is because the central elites are fragmented, the emperors were able to play factions against each other. And then that, that's why we see starting in the Song Dynasty, we see the start of an absolute monarchy. That is the Chinese emperors were able to strengthen their powers starting in the Song Dynasty, because of the fragmentation of the central elites. And at the same time, secondly, because of the localization of the social relations of the central elites, um, the Chinese state capacity started to decline because the central elites were no longer interested in making policies to strengthen the central government.
0: As per what we previously discussed about the uniqueness of China, of being one polity for almost two millennia, I can understand why that will occur in settings of high network density where central and local elites are all interlinked. But why would that happen in other cases? Why dispersed elites in China chose to remain part of the same polity rather than break up and create their own states, such as what happened immediately after the collapse of the Han dynasty early on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think um, there are some studies that show Um, that geography is very important in determining the political geography of countries. For example, there's one paper that shows that um, in Europe, there are those barriers you know, mountains and rivers that actually separate the kingdoms from each other. So it's actually difficult for those kingdoms to be unified because of the geographic barriers. But in China, you know, China also has a lot of mountains and uh, and rivers, but there's one core northern plain, for example, you know, along the Yellow River and then between the Yellow River and then the Yangtze River, there's this one core agricultural plain, which has very high agricultural productivity. So, so that geography, I think, made it easy for China to be unified. Uh, so that's the geographic argument. But in my book, I argue that uh, the civil service examination system also played a role. Because when we look at um, the Chinese history before China started to have the examination system, and then after they have the uh, examination system, China was very different. So before the Song Dynasty, China was actually as fragmented as Europe. Now, as you said, you know the, the the Han Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty were were unified, but actually there were quite a few periods in Chinese history before the 10th century um, that China was actually fragmented. You know, one uh, very recent example. Was after the fall of the Tang Dynasty, there was the uh, um, so-called Five Dynasties period. And that's actually a period where China was fragmented. So China was actually very fragmented uh, in the first half of the, this imperial history. That is from the Qin Dynasty to the Tang Dynasty. It is actually the second half of the imperial China from the Song Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty that China was pretty much unified. You know there were four unified dynasties that document uh, that that dominated. The second part of imperial China, the Song Dynasty, the Yuan Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, and the Qing Dynasty. So, And then I argue that uh, uh, the civil service examination system that started in the 10th century played a very important role in unifying the Chinese state because it gave a channel for the local elites to enter the central bureaucracy and then made it possible, for example, for the local elites to participate in central politics. Although when they participate in politics, they still care about their local benefits, local welfare, but at least the civil service examination system um, incentivizes all the educated people in China in different places, right, Uh, to be educated in the same way, to read the same books, and then take the same examination system, also provide this channel for social mobility everywhere in China. I think that played a very important role in keeping China unified.
0: A related question is, how do periphery elites, even for minor external elites can become internal nodes of a pre-existing social terrain? And perhaps even more importantly, how can they establish themselves as a central node of said social terrain, like the Mongolian and the Manchurian did with the Yuan and Qing dynasties?
1: Yeah, so right, there were two uh, dynasties in late imperial China that were ruled by minorities. One is the Yuan dynasty ruled by the Mongolians, and then the other is the Qing dynasty ruled by the Manchus. Uh, Yuan and Qing are quite different in the sense that I think Yuan, during the Yuan times, the the Mongolian elites uh, didn't care so much about co-opting the Han majority, and then they didn't quite rely on the institutions they inherited from the previous dynasties, which is the civil service examination system. They actually, the, When the Mongolians came in, they actually abolished the civil service examination system for quite a few years. They later on re, reinstated the civil service examination system, but but that's too late. And then they fell very, very quickly. Uh, the, the longer dynasty is the Qing dynasty, which ruled China for almost three, 300 years. And I think one of the most important reasons is because the Manchus were able to adopt the Han institutions, which is the civil service examination system, which you know played a role in co-opting the Han elites and making the Han elites feel that they have a role in politics. Um, the other fact is that... Um, when the Manchus came in, they also brought in their own Manchu institutions. That's the eight banners. The eight banners emerged in the northeastern part of China when the Manchus were um, preparing for military campaigns. And then they connected the different tribes within the Manchus and then color-coded them in eight banners. And so they used the eight banners to coordinate all the military actions within the Manchu Army, And then uh, also the eight banners was a very important way for the Manchus to regulate elite relations because there were aristocratic families within the Manchus and they each represent a banner within the eight banners. So the uh, it's a military institution, but also it's an elite institution that regulated the relationship between the ruler and then the elites. And then when they came in, In 1644, uh, they were able to bring the Eight Banner system uh, uh, to China, and then use that Eight Banner system to govern the relationship between the Manchu elites and then the the Manchu emperors. And then, so for the first, uh, you know, 100 years, I would say, you know, from the mid 17th century to the mid 18th century, the Eight Banners were very effective. Uh, But then the problem is. The Eight Banners were built on a land tenure system. That is, every banner soldier was allocated a part of land, and then they need to uh, farm the land for revenue, um, for income. But gradually, the banner soldiers abandoned their land, and sold their land to the Han Chinese, and then the Eight Banners lost its source of revenue in the mid um, 18th century. So the Eight Banner system gradually. Deteriorated, and then the Manchu elites were no longer able to rely on the aid banner system to regulate the social relation, um, the social relationship between the elites and then the ruler, and then they have to go back to the Han practice, which is the Han bureaucracy, uh, to regulate that relationship. And then the Han bureaucracy is overwhelmingly staffed by Han Chinese, and then they have to go back to the what I call the bowtie network, that is within the Han bureaucracy the Han politicians are locally concentrated, and then they are not, um, they're not interested in building a strong state. So therefore, the, the, the Qing state gradually declined as a result of this.
0: Accounting for the definitive reasons for the empire's collapse is hard. But in a counterfactual world where the West didn't either directly or indirectly interfere in China, will the Qing dynasty have survived and thrived even with a weak
1: state? Right. A lot of the things happened in the late Qing Dynasty. For example, the Opium Wars, right? Uh, You have the Western intrusion, you know, the um, Russians, the Japanese all came in in the late Qing Dynasty. But also there were domestic rebellions. You know, the biggest one was the Taiping Rebellion that started in the mid-19th century that almost brought the Qing Dynasty to its knees. And then, uh, so my argument is that, you know, a lot... There were a lot of arguments made by historians about the fall of Qing, and then they all focus on the, the external threats, the internal threats. But my argument is that it's really because of the, the weak state capacity of the Qing government. Uh, that is, the inability of the Qing government to respond to all the external threats brought by the Western powers, but also the the inability of the Qing government to repress domestic rebellions, like the Taiping rebellion that led to its Collapse And then the counterfactual, I think it's interesting to think about, that is without those threats, for example, you know, without opium wars, without the uh, Taiping rebellion, whether we should think that the Qing dynasty would fall as well. I would say that it probably would fall as well, but it just fell later, right? It doesn't, it probably didn't fall in the early 20th century, probably fell in the mid 20th century, you know, after the invasion of the Japanese, for example, there will be, you know, civil wars, uh, because at the end of the Qing dynasty, what happens was that the local families started to have some control over the means of violence, right? This is, the against, um, this is against Max Weber's idea of monopoly over violence, right? And then the, in, in the late Qing dynasty, local elite families started to have private militias and then they started to organize their own defense. And then if Qing didn't fall in the early 20th century and then the trend continued, which means that the local elites started to have their own armies. I would predict that, you know, that would lead to the fall of the Qing dynasty later on, for example, in the, maybe in the 1920s, 1930s, as a result of local rebellions.
0: I know you directly avoid talking too much about China's state building after the collapse of the Qing. Nonetheless, I need to ask, was the New Republic another reshuffling of elites, just like previous revolutions in imperial times? Or the Chinese 20th century cannot be explained by the same patterns. So I guess what I'm asking is, can we still talk about elites versus ruler in that context, or
1: those new aspects like civil society begin mattering more? I think my accounts of the Imperial China has two implications for contemporary China. One is, it really helps us think about why there was a social revolution in China. Um, namely the communist revolution, right? Uh, China needed a social revolution because for hundreds of years, starting in the Song Dynasty, the Chinese society was controlled by a social network of local elites, that is local families. For example, in each county, there would be three or five gentry families that controlled local politics, right? And then they controlled local population, they controlled local taxation, they also provided local public goods. And then that was the pillar of the imperial social order for hundreds of years from the Song Dynasty to the late Qing Dynasty. And then to change that social structure, uh, what needed to be done is to revolutionize the social structure rather than change the political structure, right? So that's why we need a social revolution. And that's exactly what the Communist Party did in the 1930s, 1940s. That is, they realized that to make a new China they have to destroy the old elites, which are the local gentry families who controlled local politics, right? And then through the land reform, that's one of the major goals of the land reform was to weaken or eliminate the local landowning elites. And then that's why, you know, we see a new state in the 1950s after all the land reforms in the rural areas. Um, so that's one implication for, for contemporary China. The other Implication, I would say, is um, f- to build a strong state, I would still say that the Chinese Communist Party also needed to build a star network. That is, they want to build a social network where the central elites are connected with each other, but also the central elites are connected with the local social groups. And then they try to do this in the 1950s uh, after they won the revolution. We see that, for example, the revolutionary families, so-called um right nobility, you know, the Mao's family, Deng's family, so on and so forth. They're well connected with each other. Um, And then um, uh, they had disagreements, but they all agree that they want to build a strong central state. And then starting in the reform era, for example, the Deng family started to take a lead and then form those very close-knit social ties and also business ties with other parties. I think that coalition in the late 1970s, early 1980s, played a very important role in making sure that China's reforms worked well, because that coalition pushed China's economic reforms in the late 1970s, 1980s. So I think that the, the framework that I articulated in the book about the Star Network still worked in contemporary China.
0: Great. Thank you very much for your time, Jihua. It has been quite interesting talking about your your book, which is fascinating in itself. Thanks
1: Thank you for having me, Fernando
0: For almost two millennia China was the worlds superpower. Unlike the West, which fragmented into several small states after the fall of the Roman Empire, China remained unified and extensive. Yet the cost of maintaining political stability rested on making the Chinese state gradually less assertive. To survive, the ruler had to see to the demands of the local elites. Ultimately, this dynamic created the conditions for the system to implode. The story of China helps us understand how misleading it is to focus on specific metrics of state power. A large and stable polity may still lack resilience. has been Penns Exchange Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based, and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as Penn_Exchange. Stay tuned.